Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Fajors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Invisible Men. Uh, my name is Ian Rowe, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Nike Fajors, a member of the Leadership Network at AEI. Yeah, Nike, it's good to see you. And as our viewers know, uh, each week we feature some pretty exceptional uh, men who you may not know, but who are doing just incredible work in their community or in business or in pop culture or in journalism. And today uh, we are quite honored to have someone who may not be so invisible, but still uh, <laughs> whose ideas are uh, pretty powerful. And we're honored to have the opportunity to welcome Jason Riley. Hello, Jason. How are you? I'm good, and thank you for having me. Yeah, so Jason, you are a columnist at the Wall Street Journal, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. You've written several books. You know, you wrote False Black Power, and you wrote a book which I think is like one of the greatest titles of all time, Please Stop Helping Us, which I think is <laughs> <laughs> just a great title. And you have just written uh, probably a book of, of in some ways, the, the, the prototypical invisible man, uh, uh, Thomas Sowell, uh, it's called Mavericks. We can't wait to uh, dive into what led you to uh, write this book, how you got access to uh, Thomas Sowell and why his work uh, is so important. Uh, but before we get there, uh, we'd love to know just a little bit about you, you know, the Jason Riley before the Wall Street Journal, before the Manhattan Institute, before all of these great books. When you were younger and you were kind of making your way in the world, what, what, um, what experience led you to think differently or to, to lead you to, to the way that you view the world today? Well, uh, Ian, I, I, didn't, I wasn't a particularly as politically astute kid. Um, I, was, I was into sports and, and movies and things like that. And, and, and uh, I, I was not particularly... Uh, aware politically of what what was going around. I was a child of the '80s. Reagan Reagan uh, was president for 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 most of my childhood, and um, uh, it's just not something I, I thought about a lot. I, I was from a very religious family. My parents were divorced, and my mother uh, uh, took us to to church three times a week. Um, so I guess there was a sort of cultural conservatism built built into to that through the sort of black church. Um, but I didn't think a lot about politics. We didn't sit around the dinner table discussing politics. And, and where was this? I'm sorry? Where was this? I grew up in Buffalo, New York, upstate New York, uh, where I also went to school. Uh, so it wasn't really until college that I began to, uh, to think about these things in any depth. And it, it just so happens that, that uh, one of the, the first people I encountered that, that gave me a a very interesting perspective on these things was Thomas Sowell, who I discovered in, in, in college. I was working on the school paper and uh, uh, talking about affirmative action with a group of fellow students. And someone said, Jason, you sound like Tom Sowell. And I said, who's that? <laughs> and and the, the person wrote down the name of a book on a, on a sheet of paper. And I went to the school library that evening and checked it out and, and read it in one sitting and went back the next day and checked out the rest of the Thomas Sowell collection. <laughs> and uh, and I've, I've been hooked ever since. He's had a tremendous influence on on the way I uh, I think about 
about things, um, my interest in economics in particular. Uh, and so it, 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 he is, you know, uh, I, I wanted to write the book for personal reasons because of that, in addition to sort of um, uh, uh, showcasing him to a broader audience. Wow, interesting. So does he know that? Did, did, was that how you hooked him in to tell him to? Uh, uh, no, <laughs> no. I, 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 what happened was I, I joined the, the Wall Street Journal uh, pretty much right out of college and um, was wow. working on the editorial page in New York. And Seoul would come through New York on book tours. And this would be in the mid-1990s. And so I initially met him when he came through New York City to meet with various editorial boards. Uh, I was at the Journal at the time. That's when I first first met him in person. I then later went out to Stanford University's Hoover Institution, where he's based, to do a profile of him for the paper. And that would have been in the mid-2000s. And uh, that's when we sort of struck up an acquaintance that has endured. And, and shortly after that profile ran, I began kind of dogging him about being his biographer. Uh, he, he didn't have one. I'm, I'm his only biographer. This is the first biography ever written of him. Uh, he's written a memoir, but no one's ever written a biography of him. And um, he was a little reluctant. And I think, um, uh, you know, he's going to be 91 years old in June. So maybe I just wore him down. <laughs> he finally <laughs> wanted to stop bothering him about it and agreed to, uh, to cooperate. He, he told me to go ahead and write it. He didn't need to cooperate, but I, I didn't want to write it without his cooperation. So um, I, I, I wanted him to give me the, the go ahead. Yeah, it's also just a better book because he can yeah. give you those insights. So uh, what is it? Wh why is it that someone like Thomas Sowell, it's very interesting, Nike, we've had several guests who oh. said that Thomas Sowell, you know, <laughs> discovering Thomas Sowell's works were so influential in their own lives. Absolutely. So, Jason, what do you think it is that someone, you know, someone like a Thomas Sowell who is so prolific, so extraordinarily detailed in his research, that oftentimes bucked the dominant narrative, particularly around race-related issues. Why isn't his work more celebrated and known, especially as we, we have conversations about race and racism and what the factors are that are driving outcomes, particularly for, black, for the black community? Well, I think the short answer to your question, uh, Ian, is that uh, Tom Sowell was, was sort of canceled before it was cool. He uh, was someone that the um, uh, political left went after a long, long time ago, back in the, in the, in the, in the 1970s, when he began to write about racial controversies. And, um, and they succeeded, uh, by and large. Um, uh, the media succeeded in isolating him, and, and, and intellectuals, other intellectuals succeeded in isolating him largely. And it's one of the reasons why he is not uh, as well known today as someone like Ta-Nehisi Coates or, or, or Ibram Kendi or Nicole Hannah-Jones or Cornell West or Henry Louis Gates and, and folks like that who are sort of mentioned in this you know, black pantheon of intellectuals in America. Um, and I think that's a shame. I think Seoul has written uh, circles around those guys, not, not just in terms of uh, how wide ranging uh, his research has been in various areas, but also the depth and the rigor of his thinking, I think is, is, is unmatched. They don't come close to Seoul on these issues. But as you know, uh, it is the political left that controls, you know, not only academia and the foundation world, but also controls the circles and who gives out prizes and awards to, to intellectuals and so forth. And Seoul has simply, you know, refused to play footsie with these folks over the years. And I think it's, it's, it's cost him professionally 
uh, particularly in terms of, of recognition. And, and, and the reason he's gotten into trouble with them, I think, is uh, of a piece with the reason and how he's distinguished himself as a scholar. That is to say, uh, Thomas Sowell is a straight shooter. He is a tell it like it is kind of guy. He's someone who follows the facts where they lead. He is not concerned if, 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 those, if those conclusions are politically incorrect or unfashionable or unpopular. Uh, he thinks the role of a scholar and an intellectual is to tell the truth. And that is what he does. And it is largely, you know, is often an unvarnished truth and he is not willing to sugarcoat things. And, um, and, and, and when it comes to certain racial controversies, as you know, um, the, 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 the pressure is to sugarcoat. Um, or, or if a finding is politically incorrect, to keep it to yourself. That, uh, that, that, they may, that may make you uh, unpopular, cost you professionally. And again, Sol has been uh, someone who has not concerned himself with those things. And I think it's made him uh, more controversial. Well, you know, I, I have to make two comments, Jason. One, I'm so happy that he's alive uh, as you complete this book and it's published this month. I think that's important. You know, I, I, I uh, that matters because the respect, you know, I, I don't, does he know, does he know how many people out there really treasure him? <laughs> um, I, I, I think he's, he's, he, I think he has some, some idea, you know, he's got a, um, uh, he's not on social media at all, never has been, but he has a fan account on Twitter. I've he has seen more that. than seven hundred thousand followers. <laughs> um, you know, his, 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 his videos on YouTube have millions and millions yes. of views. And I, um, I, I, in addition to writing the book, I narrated this documentary film about Soul, and it was available on YouTube and, and Amazon and and uh, some other places. And we were able to look at the demographics of who was streaming it. And I was uh, very happy to find out that uh, it was a lot of younger people people in their 20s and 30s and 40s. Uh, so that, that um, you know, that, that made me feel very good. Uh, that, that is the, the audience I'd like to reach. Um, I, I think Sol is, is, his work is extremely important. We're still talking about many of these issues that he delved into decades ago. He was right then, he's still right. Everything from the social justice debates, this critical race series, uh, critical race theory, stuff, the, uh, the affirmative action debates, the slavery reparations debates, Sol has tackled all of that and, and, uh, and been right about all of that. And I think um, his research is still very, very relevant to what's going on today. And I don't want to give too much away about the book, but at what, where does the book end? Where do you sort of uh, end well, your... Well the, well, the book is, um, is, is, is mostly an intellectual biography. It focuses on his ideas as a scholar, where he's distinguished himself. You know, he started out uh, uh, and never really stopped writing about economic history. That was what his PhD was in, the history of economic thought and ideas. And he studied under Milton Friedman at the University of Chicago. And um, uh, so his first books were about economic history. You know, Sowell is a student of Adam Smith and, and John Stuart Mill and David Ricardo and those guys. Um, and that was his first love. And, um, you know, and that's what he, sort of stuck to writing about for most of the 60s. It wasn't until the 1970s that he really turned to, to writing about racial issues. And, and it was because he saw 
the civil rights movement going down a path that he thought was ill-advised. Um, uh, a, a movement that had been focused on equal opportunity was shifting in its focus on equal outcomes and special treatment for blacks and so forth. And Sowell said, this is not the way to go. It also began became much more focused, the civil rights movement did, particularly after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, on um, seeking political clout for blacks, putting more blacks in office and thinking that would be the key okay. to closing other racial gaps, economically, educationally, and so forth, if we can just get more of our own in office. And Sowell saw, again, uh, through his, his work on, on economic history and the history of ideas, that this was not the way to go. So he began to weigh in on this stuff in the 1970s, and it rubbed a lot of the civil rights movement types the wrong way, as, long, as well as the intellectuals. Who, who believed in, in that strategy the wrong way. And so um, these controversies go back um, some time and, and Sol was there at the beginning. What, do you, what would you say is the single um, most significant uh, data point or narrative that Sol has debunked as it relates to race? Because you say he's- Oh, he's, yeah, yeah. There, there, are, there, are, there are several. Well, one, one big picture, uh, point that he has made is, um, and he, he gets into this in, in what he considers his most important book or his favorite book, which is A Conflict of Visions, a book that he wrote um, about political philosophy and, and the roots of our, our differences and controversies in, in political thinking uh, over the centuries. Uh, he traces the roots of these, uh, of these conflicts. And um, uh, what he describes in there is the, is the view that some people have uh, that assume that uh, in the natural order of things, human capital would be uh, equally distributed uh, uh, throughout different groups. Um, and we would therefore see um, something appro uh, approaching uh, or approximating uh, proportionate outcomes in, say, income or educational attainment or employment and so And so people start as if that is the natural state of things. And then they set out to find what is thwarting this natural condition. And of course, the problem is that people who have actually studied societies down through history, both here in the US and around the world, find nothing approaching right. proportionate outcomes or the proportionate distribution of, of human capital skills, habits, behaviors, attitudes among different groups. This is nowhere to be found. So something that is held up is held up as the norm that is found nowhere. And something that is found everywhere, meaning uh, disproportionate outcomes, um, is, is held out as something aberrant that we must tackle and solve. And, and Sol has, has questioned the premise of this thinking uh, throughout his scholarship. And I, and I think that is a, 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 an insight, I, I think, that will endure and, and really permeates a lot of his work, particularly on race and culture. This idea yeah. that equal outcomes are the norm and where we don't find them, something is wrong. Something nefarious is going on. Well, what's interesting about that is, right, there's, there's no such, you know, there, there are disproportionate outcomes because you don't get equal outcomes by immutable characteristics, right? So simply because someone is black or a woman, that shouldn't guarantee outcomes. But there are outcomes that his research does support, right, that is related to certain behaviors or attitudes. Doesn't his work also, because I think this is important to highlight that you can more likely 
predict outcomes with different kinds of inputs. Well, well what, what he has focused on is the importance of culture and the importance of human capital, uh, the development of human capital. And again, by human capital, I'm talking about the development of certain skills and attitudes and behaviors um, uh, that uh, help a group succeed economically in society. And, and his work has shown that if a group has that human capital going for it, it can overcome all kinds of other obstacles that, that uh, society might throw at them. In other words, hated groups, discriminated uh, groups that have been discriminated against from the ethnic Chinese in Southeast Asia to Jews in Eastern Europe to the Japanese here in the United States and, 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 and Canada. Uh, these hated groups have nevertheless developed human capital that has allowed them to not only uh, rise economically to the level of the majority group, but to surpass in many cases those majority groups, despite the discrimination that uh, they faced in the past or may currently still face. And so the importance of developing that human capital has been something that uh, Sol's work has, has, has focused on. Um, whereas the other side comes at this by seeing um, discrimination as the main obstacle or racism as the main obstacle to an ethnic or racial minority group's progress, and therefore focusing on eliminating that racism or discrimination as the only way to help that, uh, that minority group advance. And, and Sola said, A, you know, given, given, given human nature, the likelihood that we are going to eliminate uh, discrimination and racism and bias and prejudice is, is, is a little far-fetched. So uh, uh, the fo focusing on that Focusing on the on the moral failings of other people uh, may give you emotional release. <laughs> it may uh, <laughs> may make you feel better. But uh, the question is, will it help that minority group advance? And and he says no. The development of that human capital is what will do it. And he what he points to, in addition to these uh, other racial and ethnic groups around the world, is what was happening in Black America after the Civil War. Uh, through Reconstruction and through the Jim Crow era, when the focus was on the development of that human capital uh, and the outcomes we saw uh, among Blacks in terms of educational attainment, in terms of uh, growing incomes, in terms of entering skilled professions, all of these trends were moving in the right direction. Uh, uh, racial inequality was narrowing during this period. And then what you see happen is the 1960s welfare state interventions come into being and, and the disintegration of the black family. And a lot of those previous trends either slowed, stalled, or in some cases completely reversed course. And what you see today, therefore, is not what the left says is legacy of, of slavery and Jim Crow, so much as a legacy of the great society interventions that were of course intended to help, but um, uh, put in place perverse incentives that have led to outcomes that we did not anticipate. Jason, before we move to our speed round, I wanna turn the lens back to you for just a moment and ask about the Wall Street Journal. It's obviously been a big part of, of your career. It's a, it's a, I would define you know, a, a truly great American institution that has contributed mightily to the advancement of a lot of the values that the three of us embrace. What, what's, what's that experience been like? What, what kind of a place is it being there? Well, um, 
it was a wonderful place to work. I mean, I, as I said earlier, I, I, I joined uh, pretty much six months after, after graduating from college. Uh, so it's really the only place I, I'd ever worked. And, um, uh, and it, was a great, it was a great place to work. It was a great experience if you're you know, curious about the world and like to travel and things like that. Um, uh, it, it, was, it was a wonderful, wonderful career. Uh, after I wrote um, uh, the book, Please Stop Helping Us, um, some people came to me and, and said, uh, would you like to join a think tank and, uh, and focus on writing these on, on these racial uh, and cultural issues? Uh, and, um, and I, you know, I, I had hesitated to do that because as a, when I was on the staff of the Wall Street Journal, I, you know, you sort of use the sports analogy, you're hitting all fields. You're, you're writing about, you know, taxes and politics and this and that. And, um, uh, you don't really just focus on, on one area in particular. And, and, and I thought, well, you know, I, I like that. I like the variety. Um, but, you know, I, I, I look at people like Sol or, or people like Shelby Steele. We just lost uh, Walter Williams, another uh, big intellectual hero of mine. Um, they were getting up there. And I did not see a younger generation, particularly of, of black thinkers, coming along to take their place, and I contrasted that with what I see on the left, where, you know, when 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 Cornell West and, and Skip Gates are, are are out of the picture, I see a whole army <laughs> of Ibram <laughs> Kendi's and Tahisi Coates is coming along uh, to, to to fill the, their shoes, and um, I find that very disturbing uh, because uh, uh, I, I profoundly disagree with the direction of the conversation they want to they want to have and I said you know I'm, I'm not Thomas Sowell or Walter Williams or Shelby Steele or Glenn Lowry I'm not uh, a scholar uh, an intellectual uh, in the sense that they are I'm a journalist but I can do what I can do as a journalist to uh, keep their ideas out there in circulation talk about them on television or on podcasts and and write about them more often and so when someone came to me after I wrote that book and said you know do you want to join the think tank world and focus on these things uh, I, I, I decided to do that. And so I left uh, the journal. I'm no longer on staff there. I just write the column. Uh, so that's all I do now. And, and the column is great. Uh, it helps me get these ideas out there. Um, uh, and, and so uh, I'm, I'm, in, I'm enjoying it. I, I really am. Brilliant. Thank you for that background. Ian, were you going to say something? Well, I'm, I'm curious, since you bring up the Wall Street Journal, how has the journal managed to not have uh, a woke ideology uh, infiltrate in the way it seems to have infiltrated almost every other major news organization? Well, um, there might be some uh, aspect of tradition at the journal that has held, held up. Um, the, the journal has always had something of a Chinese wall between the editorial pages and the news side. Um, and and that, that's held ground so far. Um, the, the there was there, there in other words there would never be any expectation that the Wall Street Journal editorial page would change its tune uh, to accommodate what Newside was doing, whereas in other papers I, I don't think there uh, there is a, a um, the same sort of red line exists uh, that ex exists at the journal so that that I think has probably helped help matters um, and I I think you know management. Um, uh, is, is wise to do that. I, I think that um, 
you know, the, the, the journal editorial page brings in a lot of readers. There are a lot of people who buy the paper for the editorial page. Count and if you were just going to turn the editorial page into an extension of the news side, um, which is, you know, what, what is the case at a lot of other uh, major papers, uh, I think you lose, you lose something uh, that, you know, that right now is value added in terms of the product that you're, uh, that, that you're putting out. Um, but things are, things are changing in journalism, Ian. It's, uh, you know, the, 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 the business model is changing. Um, you know, there was a time when I started out in the mid nineties where you had, um, you had large corporations, your IBMs or your Cisco or somebody would buy these, these hundred thousand dollar full page ads in the wall street journal. And that was the business model. It was to, um, uh, uh, lure in those, those, those big ads. And that's what paid for the paper. You, we weren't making money off of newsstand sales. Yeah, right. The number of subscriptions didn't really matter. What mattered was the advertising dollars. That whole model has been completely flipped on its head now. Uh, after the, the tech uh, bust in, in, in 2000, uh, those ads, those $100,000 ads went away and they never came back. And the model is now shifted to subscribers. Uh, and that is where the money is made now from subscriptions. And what that means and how that has impacted the, the, the content is that when, you're, when your money is coming from advertisers who want to reach a broad audience, that is reflected in the coverage of the newspaper. Um, when you're relying on readers and versus re relying on readers and trying to give those readers what they want <laughs> and then some, uh, could mean you're putting out a, a very, very different product. <laughs> and so, and this isn't just something that the Wall Street Journal has dealt with. This is, I think, what you're seeing going on in places like the New York Times and the Washington Post. Uh, they have gotten a lot more partisan, um, particularly, you know, during the, 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 the Trump years, more ideological. That is partly a result of them needing to respond to the demands of their readers in a way they did not have to in the past, because those readers were not the source of revenue uh, to, uh, for the bottom line in those companies, um, but now it is. And, and so I think you, you see that, you see news organizations grappling with that, particularly print, print journalism. Wow, we'll have to have another podcast just on how do we rectify, how do we rectify that? Because that's a chilling, that's a chilling state of affairs because it's not clear how that model is going to undo itself. Yeah, it's true. It's not, it's not. It's not. So, Jason, we'll transition to uh, what we call the, the speed round, where I'll offer up uh, two individuals or two philosophies and ask you to pick one and tell us why you pick that particular uh, instance or person. So we'll start with uh, Malcolm or Martin. Um, uh, in hindsight, Martin. Um, and, and, and because uh, it, it worked. Um, the, uh, Martin Luther King's methods uh, led to the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, hugely consequential pieces of legislation. And, you know, today uh, his methods are dismissed as respectability politics and they're sort of uh, 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 degraded uh, by uh, some, younger, some younger whippersnappers out there in the activist crowd. But uh, the fact of the matter is um, they were effective. Uh, this, this idea that um, you care about how you carry yourself, how you speak, um, uh, how you behave, 
uh, not because um, uh, it means that uh, uh, it'll eliminate racism, but because uh, those features are conducive to advancing economically in a free market uh, society like we have. So um, I, I think it's, it's hands down that, that King's approach was the right approach. And I think he, that approach still has a lot uh, to teach us about um, how to move forward today. And continuing on, so civil rights or economic development? Um, I think the civil rights battles have been fought and won by the right side, I might add. <laughs> um, and I think the problem we have today is that um, a lot of the problems that, that blacks face are, are being put under the civil rights rubric where they don't belong. And, and, and that is impacting how we go about addressing them. So, you know, the, the south side of Chicago is getting shot up every weekend uh, that's a problem. It's not a civil rights problem. Um, the Klan is not driving through the south side of Chicago, shooting it up. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, we have an achievement gap um, in this country. It is not because uh, black kids are, reg uh, you know, are relegated to um, uh, schools that, that, that don't have resources or, or um, uh, you know, that, that don't have books like uh, you were talking about in the Jim Crow South uh, 70, 80 years ago. Uh, that, uh, yet this is, again, is, is, is being discussed uh, in that context. And, I, and so um, uh, I, I think, you know, you know, blacks are not being denied access to the ballot, um, even though, again, we're talking about voter suppression as if this is uh, counting uh, jelly beans in a jar and poll taxes when that is not, not what is going on here, um, uh, you know. You know, blacks in 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 2008, 2012 turned out at higher rates than whites to vote. Um, you know, blacks in 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 a state like Georgia are registered at higher rates uh, than whites are. Um, so again, when when we're we're talking about a lot of these issues as if it's still 1960, and and I think that is a one of the problems that, that we're still having. I, th I do think the focus needs to be on economic, on economic development um, uh, and, and, and because I think that the, those civil rights battles have been won. And lastly, uh, I, I couldn't leave this alone, uh, Carter G. Woodson or Thomas Sowell? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I'm, I'm a Sowell guy, obviously. Um, but, um, you know, without a Carter G. Woodson, there probably is no Thomas Sowell. So, um, you know, Sowell is, particularly in his early writings, uh, you know, drew a lot of inspiration from people like Carter G. Woodson. Uh, um, and, and, and so I, I think he'd agree, he'd agree with that. Uh, there were, you know, Sowell had a tough upbringing, um, but he knows that a previous generation went through uh, even more hell than, than he did. And, and he's never, uh, never lost sight of that. Very good. Thanks, Jason. All right. Well, Jason, we know you need to roll. And, and earlier you said that Thomas Sowell has this account. Like he's not on social media, but he's got 700,000 followers, of which I am one. And uh, you uh, 
said that you looked at the demographics and you were happy, you were pleased to find that uh, there was a large population of young people. So that's very promising. And so, uh, you know, I want to come to our question about Daryl, our 16-year-old imaginary kid who, black kid who lives in forgotten USA, because the likelihood is that Daryl is not one of those young people who's actually heard of Thomas Sowell or Carter G. Woodson or Jason Riley. It's unlikely, maybe. Uh, maybe he'll have the experience you did. So I'm curious, maybe from two vantage points, because uh, this was the whole impetus for Nike and I to start this many years ago, providing advice to Daryl, because he, we were invisible to him. Men like us were invisible, as was our assumption. What do you think Thomas Sowell would say to a Daryl in terms of finding his pathway in the world, knowing that these ideas that he's probably not getting exposed to. So what do you think Thomas Sowell would provide in terms of advice? And then what would you provide in terms of what you'd say to Daryl? Well, I, I think we would both say uh, to, to a young person like that, that, um, that you know, they, they need to educate themselves. Um, and, and, uh, and if they do that, they will realize that um, whatever problems are out there today, and, and I'm not someone who uh, thinks there are no racists out there, that racism has been vanquished from America, or that I will live to see the day when it has been. Um, at the same time, uh, it's clear from someone who, who does their homework and puts up a history book that there have never been uh, more or better opportunities uh, for blacks in this country, uh, and therefore in the world, <laughs> than exist today. And that his job is to prepare himself to take advantage of those opportunities. And that should be what his focus is on, not on playing the victim and not on, on, on making excuses uh, as to why he can't succeed, but to keep in mind what others went through before him, what they were able to overcome, and why he has even fewer hurdles to overcome. And, and he should be appreciative of that and not let those opportunities go to waste. Yep. One final, one final uh, follow-up because I can hear people who, you know, have hear an answer like that and say, you see, he's just saying Daryl's got to lift himself up by the bootstraps. What do you say when you hear that kind of comeback to... I, I, I say again that these are people who, who don't seem to know their history um, and don't know, I referenced it earlier, uh, what was going on in black America uh, prior to um, the Civil Rights uh, Act of 1964, prior to the affirmative action programs of the 1970s, prior to the Great Society uh, welfare state expansions, blacks were lifting themselves up. Between 1940 and 1960, the black poverty rate fell by 40 percentage points before affirmative action, before any major civil rights legislation passed. These people simply don't know that history. And I would encourage them to educate themselves about what was going on. Gaps were closing uh, at this time. They were narrowing significantly at this time. During a period, yes, whites were making gains too, but not as fast as blacks were making gains at this period. The, the rate at which blacks were entering the skilled professions between 1940 and 1970 quadrupled before affirmative action. And, and, and so people who want to ascribe all of this progress 
that blacks have made to government intervention simply don't know what was going on when the government did not give a damn what was going happening to black people in this country and what blacks therefore had to do for themselves. It's a rich history that we should be celebrating, but unfortunately, uh, too few people know about it. Wow. Well, Jason Riley, thank you so much. And thank you for bringing your work and the work of Thomas Sowell uh, into much greater visibility. Our whole goal is to make these kind of, of achievements invisible no more. Well, thank you for thank, yes, I thank our viewership uh, for listening to another episode of The Invisible Men. If you'd like to watch other episodes, please go to www.invisible.men. Nike, as always, great to see you. Great to see you as well. Brother Riley, just please tell us and, and our viewers and listeners where they can pick up and what day they can pick up Maverick. Uh, Maverick can be pre-ordered on Amazon right now, uh, and it will officially be available on May 25th. Wonderful. I'm getting in line right after this. They can watch the, um, the Soul documentary, uh, Common Sense and a Senseless World, on YouTube, on Vimeo, on Amazon Prime, uh, or it may still be showing on their local public television station. Oh, wow. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. okay. Well, thank you, Jason. Thank you. Take care, guys. Thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can find other episodes at the AEI podcast channel on YouTube or the website invisible.men or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 